the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. We've talked about the fact many times down through recent years how that there are churches around the globe that actually view America as the mission field. And certainly those of us that live here in the greater San Francisco Bay Area, just open your front door, can recognize that based on the diversity of the Bay Area. But what of the notion of people coming from other countries to the United States to bring the gospel to our shores. Don't believe me? Well, my next guest is proof positive. Joining me today in conversation is the lead pastor of Pathway Community Church of Fremont. And Pastor Box, great to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the chance to share. Well, I get the sense that there is indeed a story here, and based on my my setup or my lead-in to our conversation today, uh, maybe I'll fill in the blanks for listeners by saying that you have recently come to California and uh, joined the staff at Pathway from Nairobi Chapel in Kenya. Yeah, well, to give a little bit of my backstory, I grew up in the East Coast. I grew up in Maryland. I did my first degree outside Chicago. I went to Wheaton College, studied Bible and theology. But when I was coming to the end of my time at, at Wheaton, I wanted to do another degree. I wanted to do a uh, uh, Master of Divinity. And my desire from an early age has been to go into ministry. My desire has been to serve overseas as well. That's been something that God put on my heart from the time I was pretty young. So I started looking into the opportunity to study abroad. So I looked at some schools in Europe and elsewhere. But I ended up hearing about a school in Nairobi, Kenya. I went there as a student right out of college. And so it was in 2008 that I started there at the seminary. And I graduated in 2011. And then when I graduated with my my MDiv, I had the opportunity to stay on in Nairobi. So one of my professors from seminary was the principal of another college. He asked me to come and teach there. It was affiliated with the Anglican Church. So I worked there for three years as a missions training college inside Nairobi. But then when my time at that college was up, the lead pastor, the senior pastor at Nairobi Chapel, Pastor Oscar, he invited me to come on staff and become a pastor there. So I did that for several years in Kenya. I planted a church in 2016. And then Pastor Oscar asked my wife and I to move from Kenya into the U.S. to come to California as part of a partnership with a group of churches here in the Bay Area. And so that's really what brought my wife and I here to the Bay Area. That's my wife an, is from Kenya, by the way. That's an amazing trajectory. And I, I guess to kind of put this in perspective for listeners, God has been doing some tremendous things up and down the entire continent of Africa. And there are many communities that are witnessing extreme degrees of evangelism results, meaning tens of thousands of people are coming to the saving knowledge of Christ every day all across the continent. But certainly against that backdrop, there are issues related to everything from plagues of locusts of literally biblical proportions in areas of South Sudan. Certainly we've seen a lot of unrest. I think of uh, neighboring countries that in specific to Kenya and elsewhere have been dealing with the increased influence of Islam. And uh, there's been everything from kidnappings of foreign nationals to even missionaries. So it certainly is not the National Geographic sort of experience that some folks might make it out to be. But nevertheless, as we indicate, God has been doing some tremendous things there. And and Kenya's a fascinating country. I've been there. And it's always an interesting dichotomy how uh, you are here in the middle of the continent of Africa, and can wake up on any given morning and find a little bit of fog in the morning and cool temperatures, uh, particularly there in the capital. It's really a very beautiful country. Oh, it is. It's absolutely beautiful. And, and for me, it, just, it, was, it was a wonderful experience to be there as a student, to be there in ministry. And it, it helped me to see what ministry is like 
around the world. It helped me to, yeah, to, to see how God is moving, what their experience of prayer, their expression of faith, and, and a lot of, yeah, just, just tremendous stuff that I'd never experienced in the U.S. The challenge of poverty. So many people living in Nairobi just deal with an economic situation that I, it's hard for me to imagine, given my background and my upbringing and tremendous struggles that a lot of churches are just very involved in, in helping with. And so there's so many people coming to faith. Just so much. I mean, yeah, we, we used to do all-night prayer where we go from 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. Just so much energy that I didn't always see in the church here in the U.S. Yeah, it's fascinating. In both Kenya and Nigeria, the two countries that I have some knowledge of, while there are extreme degrees of poverty literally all around you, maybe in a sense that kind of helps get materialism out of the way because there is a genuineness to the faith of the church in Kenya that is really quite remarkable, and you just kind of hinted to it. I mean, when you talk about all-night-long prayer meetings, you think, well, that that doesn't really happen, does it? I mean, my church gets a prayer meeting together, and but we're done by 7.30 at o'clock at night. There is something unique about the fervency of the faith of the average yeah. Christian in Kenya, for which it's difficult to find parallels and it's interesting because you must have had some culture shock in both directions. First, traveling from the United States to work on your degree and do missions work in Kenya. And then after having been there for an extended season, returning back to the United States and then looking at the difference between the church in Kenya and the church here, there must have been some degree of culture shock for you, kind of yeah. bi-directional. Bi that, that's very true. Yeah, there was a lot that I learned and that I had to experience and it was a surprise in various ways when I moved there. And definitely some surprises coming here to the church where I'm serving now. Yeah, very different environment, for sure. Historically, the church in the West, and I'll speak specifically to the United States, historically the church in the West has had a long, sometimes sordid history of taking Western-style Christianity to other nations, not only to teach them about Christ, but to teach them about how we do church, mm -hmm. which oftentimes creates what I'll call cultural roadblocks, because yeah. while the gospel message and God's word is universal for all tribes, tongues, times, and all nations, the methodology in which we have quote-unquote church on Sunday can really vary from culture to culture. From your perspective, what was one of the biggest takeaways from your experience in Kenya that you brought back with you to the United States and saying, you know, we don't do this as well here in the United States as the church in Kenya does. I think faith and prayer would be two of the ones that really come to mind. I think there's a level of faith and trust that God would work in many of the churches in Kenya. For many of my friends, many of the Christian leaders I worked with, expectation that a lot of churches here don't have. So part of what drew me to Nairobi Chapel in particular when I first had the opportunity to go on staff, is they had a vision to plant 300 churches around the world by 2020. And I think they first set up the vision around maybe 2000. So they've been going for a number of years. When I came in the picture, about 2014, 2015 is when I came on. But I was really inspired by both the depth and the breadth. I mean, there's so much that the church both thought was possible and that believed God could do, even when it didn't seem possible. And I feel like it just really pushed us to to reach people and and to and to step out and to do something that that maybe we couldn't imagine how it would work, but that we believe God could do. I remember setting goals, and Pastor Oscar would look at them and he'd say, "These goals are something you could do. Where are you trying to do something that you can't do that only God could do?" And that just wasn't something that I had, you know, learned in the U.S. And, and coming in, our, our church here, just the culture, the expectations are, are very different. And often it just isn't quite the same level of faith, the same level of expectation that God could provide all the funds that we need. God can open the door for ministry. God can reach people. And often in my church here, there's been, I would say, more of a, it's an older church. It's been a church that's been in decline. It's just a very different expectation. And, and often there's more discouragement and, and less anticipation very different than what I had experienced in, in ministry there. Do you also find that perhaps the faith approach is kind of flipped? And by that I mean, I would imagine, you know, through most of the West, when we talk about doing things for the Lord, 
you know, there's a committee that we get together. We look at the budget. Maybe we have a couple of fundraising dinners. We'll do a bake sale on Sunday morning. We'll raise the funds to do what we want to do. There's a yeah. tremendous sense of, of self-sufficiency yeah. and self-reliance yeah. and the need to necessarily lean entirely upon God is, right. if not an afterthought, the the sort of final recourse where right. I would think that would contrast with the church in places like the continent of Africa, where you don't have access to those kinds of resources. And so as a result, God is not sort of the final place that you go seeking help, but the first and oftentimes the only place from which that help comes. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. When your expectations in ministry is not just that we have all the resources we need, but that we, we believe that God is able to come through. It's just, it, it is a very different attitude. It is a very different uh, approach. Um, and, and yeah, it, it plays into your faith. It plays into how you pray, what you expect God to do. Yeah, and just the belief and the trust that God is at work. And if it's God's will, it, it will happen. Even if I don't see how it's possible, if I don't see how it will, it will come to be, the details and the plans and all of that. So, Having yeah. been born and bred in the United States spent a good period of time in Kenya, then back now in the United States. Um, talk to me about the, the issue of materialism, for want of a better term, and, and its potential stumbling block that it may pose to the church um, here in the West. And I, and I pose that question because I remember one time in, in our travels in Kenya, on a Sunday we visited a church and there was going to be a breakaway session for children's church. And while the main church was under a, a, a open-sided, covered building, the children's church was going to take place right out there, just below the banyan tree. And I can imagine most church building committees would say, oh, this is completely not acceptable. We, we need to get, you know, get the thermometer and keep track of our building fund, and we need to go build ourselves uh, several classrooms. And yet I, I was... I was fascinated by, and to a great degree, even convicted by, the degree of simplicity, and that in many respects, at least from my viewpoint, uh, not having so much materialism, while in a way can be a deficit, particularly if you're talking about people that don't have enough to put a roof over their heads or food on the table, but beyond that, the whole business of stuff that we tend to collect in the first world that I wonder if it gets in the way oftentimes of our relationship and reliance upon him. It just seems to be an additional stumbling block that in many cases people that have far less, and again, while I'm not minimizing the severity when that impact goes to lack of housing, lack of potable water, lack of medicine, lack of food, those are all critical issues, whether you're first world or third world. But right. I have to just wonder your your observations related to the impact that materialism tends to have on the church here in America. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one, one comment I'll make, I mean, I, one of the challenges that I do think is facing many churches in Kenya is the temptation of, of theologies like the prosperity gospel, where there are many churches that do lean into what, what is ultimately a, a materialist gospel where the, the, the focus is on as even as someone in poverty, your focus is on getting rich. So that is something that I did see, unfortunately, in, in many churches. So I, I think it can be a temptation in different ways wherever you live. But that said, I, I think you make a good point that we have, I think, especially in an affluent area like, you know, here where we live just north of San Jose, you know, in Silicon, outside Silicon Valley, near Silicon Valley. We, I think we have a temptation to comfort um, probably in a, in, a, in a stronger way than many people around the world. If we have an expectation of comfort, I think that can often play a very negative role in our faith, in our churches. One of the analogies that, that I've heard recently is many people come to expect church to be a cruise ship experience, when perhaps a better model of church is something like a battleship experience, where it, it, it's on mission. It's not designed for comfort. It's designed, in our case, to reach people, not, not to destroy. So it's not a perfect analogy. Well, but our, our goal is to reach people, but it's not our own comfort. It's not that we have a service that caters just to our needs, but that it's it's worshiping God and it's reaching others. I mean, it's reaching people who are far from God. 
And if your only goal is personal comfort, then that really works against that goal. They, they really are often in, in conflict. Um, it's, yeah, and as you say, if your whole focus is the building, how soft are the seats, or what, what level of AC do we have? But I think that also plays, it becomes a big challenge to something like outreach, where if your goal is comfort, then if it's uncomfortable, you're never going to bring up Jesus in a, in a conversation in a way that could be awkward. You're, you're not going to challenge someone if they're living in sin, if they're doing something wrong. And there's just a whole aspect of our faith that just just simply is not done. It just simply is, is left untapped if, if you do give in to that material temptation of just my life is about getting a good job and making sure my kids are okay and making sure my house is stocked and making sure I've got my own car. And so much of the American dream is directed so strongly on that. And that, that really takes away from the meaning of, 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 and the reality of our faith. Yeah, if you look at, at the totality of Scripture, particularly when you, when you begin to study who Christ is, why he came, what he yes. set out to accomplish, yes. it, it really pivots not on the matter of stuff. Yes, indeed, my father right. owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Right, right. And he created it all. But at the end of the day, the focus is on relationship, not yeah. on stuff, because let's face it, the stuff will someday pass away. All of this will go back to dust again at some point. Right. And the only thing that remains is our relationship with him. Right, right. I think when you take a discipline, say a discipline like fasting, growing up here in the United States at my church, and I, I've been going to church pretty much my whole life, but I don't remember a church ever participating in a fast. And I know, I know some churches do. I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience. But my church in Kenya, that was my first experience of doing a fast. And when we came here to the Bay Area, our, our senior pastor, he called for a 40-day water-only fast. And, and that sounds, that's biblical, right? I mean, that just sounds, I would have said, that's impossible. That can't be done. And for me, when I came, I went 20 days. I drank only water. I had no food at all, twice. And so I did not do 40 consecutive days, but I did 20 consecutive days and, and to focus on prayer. And there were other people, he himself and others, that did 40 days um, of, of fasting. Now, you have to manage that. I mean, that, that, that there are a lot of health considerations. So I'm, I'm not saying to do that without going into a lot of, um, you know, a lot of care and you have to do it carefully. But um, that's something where I think for my church here, it's very countercultural, you know, here in California, where the idea of intentionally denying yourself food. Why would you do that? <laughs> and, you know, we, we've we done some We struggle with intentionally denying ourselves anything, let alone right. food. Right. And, and so something like that, that idea of sacrifice, I think, is it's not natural to American culture. And I think cultures like, like Kenya and, and other places in the world are much, even places like Korea, I think there's a lot of places that, that, that take that on much better, like waking up early to pray, giving up food, things like that that are, that are that they have a lot to teach us. I think we have a lot to learn from them here here in the United States. Let's spend a moment and talk a bit about what God is doing at Pathway Community Church. You're located in in Fremont at 4500 Thornton Avenue. If folks are maybe new to the San Francisco Bay Area and looking for a church home, tell us what might they experience at Pathway Community Church. Yeah, so at Pathway we're we're really focused on on what it means to to know God and love God. Today, I mean, we've just finished a sermon series on emerging trends. So I've been looking at artificial intelligence, virtual reality, biotechnology. I think especially in the Silicon Valley area, that these are things we need to be cognizant of. We need to be engaging as a church. So I, I seek to make our, our time in the Word very practical and very oriented to stuff we can do. We, we seek to reach out to our community. We have uh, some small groups that meet during the week. I have men's group that meets on Monday. There's another women's group on also on Monday and then one on Thursday. And so that's a time for us to you know get into the Word, get to know each other, hear how we're doing, pray for each other. We just finished up last night a study on the book of Hebrews. So we, we wrapped that up and we'll take a break in July for, for the summer. But I think we've really been focused on how can we get to know the people around us and how can we be a part of their lives, especially people coming from other countries. We have a large Afghan population here in, uh, in Fremont in particular. 
So we've been working with other organizations. We have a container on a parking lot where we have um, places for people to donate. People can bring in clothes and stuff to help Afghan refugees. And there's an Afghan-American church that that is, is primarily running that and in partnership with some others. But we, we provided them with the space. And we want, just want to provide all the practical ways that you can to help immigrants coming in, refugees, international students, and, and whoever lives around us, whoever our neighbors are, so that we can be a part of their life, invite them into community, and, and share the gospel with them. I should mention for listeners that um, you're also actively involved with CityServe. That's right. Uh, take a moment and tell us, I know the reason why, but take a moment and share with our listeners the reason why you feel that's important. Well, I, we're never... Well, we're not going to see the kingdom of God come. We're not going to fulfill God's mission on our own. But I believe we're going to see that in partnership. I believe God called us to serve him, to love him in partnership. That God desires unity. And so CityServe is a, a network of churches in the tri-cities, so Fremont, Newark, and New York City. And Pathway has been very active in that both before I came in and, and after. I, I've had a chance to join their board as well, so I've been helping to plan some of our pastors' lunches. But our focus really is on how can we pray together as, as pastors, as church leaders? Uh, how can we serve together? How can we partner in doing ministry? So something like a blood drive, the plans that we've had to do blood across different churches, things like Afghan outreach, other forms of outreach where multiple churches come together to work more effectively. And I really believe that God desires that unity, that that, that we'll, we'll, you know, I'm, I'm good friends with the Assemblies of God Church down the road and, and other, you know, there's non-denominational churches down the road. Or there's a Presbyterian church just about a block away. I pastor there. So I've been really intentional to get to know other churches that are both similar and different from my own theological tradition. But to, to know them, I pray for them. Sometimes during our service, I'll ask them, what's going on at your church? How can we pray for you? And, but just to really intentionally say, we're not competing. It's not about competition. But we're, we're serving the same God, we're serving the same mission, and we're not the same. There are differences, but I think that's what makes us stronger, is, is, is when our differences um, and, and, and our diversity you know, come together. And, and that diversity is certainly, I think, one of the strong points of the San Francisco Bay region, and one of Absolutely. tremendous opportunities that, you know, as I, as I often joke on this program, uh, for the longest time, our conception of being engaged in missions work was, well, you had to go and study a foreign language, get a passport, book an airplane, arrange for support, go fly to a foreign country, live there for a couple of years, and then slowly begin a church plant. Today, you don't need a passport. You don't necessarily need to study a foreign language. You know airplane tickets are required. And if you want to know where the mission field is, just open your front door. It's yeah. there all around you. We drive through it on our way to school, to work, to the grocery store every single day. And the opportunity to literally impact the globe with the gospel of Jesus Christ lays right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So in that sense, I think it's a wonderful incubator for new churches and church plants, and also a wonderful opportunity to see the way in which God can bring the gospel here to take the gospel back out into the uttermost parts of the earth. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, one of the, we did a sermon series last year called The Art of Neighboring. That's based on a book, and, and, and there's some other material around that that we use. A part of that is to say, who are your neighbors? You just, we had a, a, a fridge magnet where it shows a house in the middle, and then there's eight houses around it, and to say, who, who are the people who live right next to you? And we had a piece of paper. You could write down their names of all those who live next to you. And that's something as a family that we've really sought to do. Um, and yeah, we've invited three doors down, our neighbor. She's you know, originally from China, but we invited her. She's come out to our church. We invited our other neighbors that are kind of a, a, across the, the, the swimming pool behind us. We invited them to church. And they had never been in, in, in a church before. And so they came up for our Easter service earlier this year, and I got to share the gospel with them through that. And, and just a number of other neighbors that, that we connect with, many of them from India, right where we live in our neighborhood. Yeah, some from China, and we've connected with some you know, from Afghanistan that we've invited in. They've come for a women's breakfast and some other events that we've been helping with. But as you say, it's pretty hard to get to Afghanistan. Most of us may not have that opportunity, but at least where I live, I, I can go five minutes down the road. And I can meet with someone who's coming in 
and trying to make a new life for herself here in the U.S. as a single mom. And, and I can get to know her. I can hear her story. I can pray with her. And, and I can find out, are there ways that we can help you settle? And that's one of the things that we've really sought to do as a church. What, what, are, the, what are the open doors that God is, is, is opening for us, for us to build those relationships, to welcome people in, get to know them? So if you're new to the San Francisco Bay Area looking for a church home, we invite you to check out Pathway Community Church. They meet Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. at 4500 Thornton Avenue in Fremont. That is centrally located from everywhere across the San Francisco Bay Area. Again, 4500 Thornton Avenue in Fremont. Information available on the web at pathwayfremont.org. That's pathwayfremont.org. Dot O-R-G. I'd like to thank lead pastor David Box for being with us today. Pastor, a delight to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. This is, uh, yeah, I, I didn't realize you had done so much research and, and we're so informed about this, but thank you so much for your time and effort and for giving me this opportunity. I'm, I'm really honored to, to be able to do this. And again, more information available about Pathway Community Church at pathwayfremont.org. Welcome to our service. It's great to be with you, and it's great to be worshiping together and coming to a new day, a new Sunday. And as Melissa mentioned, we're going through a series on emerging trends. So looking at, especially in technology, what are some of the newest advances that are coming out, and what what does that mean for us as as people of faith? What does it mean for how I engage with this as a Christian, how I use it, how I think about it? And we want to look at that, you know, in more detail. In, uh, in throughout this, uh, this series. So last week, I, I looked at some of the positive, or some of the initial approaches we can have to artificial, tech, uh, artificial intelligence in particular. And the, the two main application points I shared last week is the importance of being informed about AI, and that applies to technology in general, but if you're looking at artificial intelligence in particular, the importance of being informed about it is having a basic understanding and knowledge of what it is, and how we can, we can use it. And, and the second one was explore ways to use AI responsibly. Just to consider, could it be something that could help in your job, maybe in certain aspects of your daily life, especially to you know, reduce or make uh, more efficient some of the, the things that you, that you don't want to spend most of your time on. And so we looked at that some last week. But as I think all of us would recognize, AI is both has some positives, but a lot of potential negatives, r- real and, and potential negatives. And so today we're going to look more at what are some of the dangers I and mean, what are some of the concerns, what are some of the ways that we can approach this carefully and responsibly, recognizing that there's very real harm that can be done, is already being done, and that could, could become worse. And for our biblical passage, I'm, we're going to look today in Genesis. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. I'm going to read Genesis 11. So this is a story of the Tower of Babel. And so this is from verse 1 up to verse, I think it's verse 9, is what I'm, what I'm reading today. And it should be on your screen as well. So let, let's read in the word of the Lord together. So Genesis 11, starting in verse 1, says this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let's make bricks and and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. For there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And this is the word of the Lord. 
So, so far in the Genesis account, we start with creation. And so we have the, the creation of, of God bringing order out of chaos. I mean, we have the creation of, of people. We have the creation of, of the, the physical earth and the stars and, and all of that, the land and the sea. And then following that, we have the fall. So we have the introduction of sin. We have Cain and Abel as we see some of the effects of sin in, in his, his killing. We have the flood, more effects of the sin as God says that, that sin has spread so much, it's infiltrated so deeply and is so pervasive that God chose to, to start over and to wipe out the current population and have a small remnant that would then restart. And so then following that, in Genesis 9, we have a mandate. This is echoing what was given in Genesis 1. But then the Lord blessed Noah and his sons, were told, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So they're given this mandate to fill the earth. They're given the responsibility to care for the earth, to lead it, to have dominion and control over it, but to spread out and to multiply and to, and to build and to grow and, and with families and to accomplish what God had, had placed them there to do. And so our passage picks up soon after that. It's, it's coming, you know, we have some genealogies in between, but it's coming right after the flood account. And then we have the story of, of building the city and building this tower. What do you think, what, what do we learn from this? I mean, what, what exactly are the, the lessons that we can draw from, from this account? And the first one that I want to highlight is, is the pitfalls of human pride. The pitfalls of human pride. Because it starts with their ambition. They decide to build a city, to build a tower. But my first question when I'm looking at this is why is that wrong? What exactly is the problem here? Because when, when I go down, I mean, they're building some new buildings in downtown Fremont. And when I drive by that, I don't think, oh, the arrogance, right? I, I don't think, I can't believe they have the audacity to put up this building. And when I, when I go to you know, a place that has skyscrapers, you know, downtown San Francisco or New York City, whatever, I, I don't just think this is so wrong, right? I, I don't think these buildings are too tall. This can't be right. And I don't believe, when you look at the Bible, it's, it's, God is not opposed to building in and of itself. I mean, Jesus tells uh, a parable about someone building a tower. He talks about counting the cost and the importance of preparing to build the tower. So the building itself is not the problem. I mean, having a city is not the problem. God is not opposed to construction. He's not opposed to having a place we can build. And I don't think he's opposed to having taller structures as opposed to shorter ones. So that is not the issue. But the problem comes in the intention. It comes in the purpose. It comes in why exactly they're doing it. So if you look again as to why they're doing it, this is what it says. It says that we may make a name for ourselves. We make a name for for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So there's two parts to that. The first part, making a name for themselves, and then avoiding the scattering. I mean, consolidating, staying together, but not being scattered, not moving out. So the intentions here were self-centered. I mean, it was, it was achieving fame, it was achieving recognition, power, and security, as opposed to acknowledging their dependence on God, the, the role that God had given them through Noah and his family that they were not fulfilling as he had asked them to. And, and of all the sins that we see in the Bible, of all the sins that we have, pride is, is recognized as the most dangerous and the most deadly. When people put together the seven deadly sins, that's not a biblical category, but when theologians of the past have kind of have ranked them, and they've said, these are the most dangerous ones you have to avoid. Pride is at the top of that list. It's the first one that is highlighted. It's, it's really the original sin. That, that's the root of what led to the fall, the rebellion, and what led to us sinning ever since. So pride is what, it's saying to God, my will be done. It's saying what I want to do. It's putting my own priorities as the most important and disregarding what God has called me to do. That's the essence of pride, saying that I know better than God. I'm disregarding what God has told me. I mean, pride is really how, the, how Satan became the devil. It's the origin of, 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 the, of the enemy that we have, and it's the core of, of why we sin. And pride, unfortunately, it's also, I think, one of the most, one of the least challenged and most accepted sins. So many times in our organizations and churches, other Christian organizations, you're usually not going to be disqualified because of pride. 
And the reality is often you are promoted because of attitudes like that. It's often, you know, a very self-confident or arrogance is, is often what it is that, that leads to promotion and success, both in the world, but unfortunately also in the church. And so in many ways, you've come to accept this as normal, really not necessarily a moral issue, contrary to what is so clear in Scripture. And God hates all sin. I mean, God disregards and, 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 and is opposed to all of it. But, but the sin that's most frequently condemned in the Bible is that of pride. So it's, if you look at Proverbs 6, there's a list there. It's at the top of that list. Later on in Proverbs, Proverbs 16, it says, The Lord detests all who are proud in heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. So the biblical account is clear of this tendency, this internal motivation, that when it is pride, that that is condemned unequivocally. In the book of James, it says God goes beyond just despising those who are proud, but he actively opposes them in James chapter 5. So we have this made very clear. So making a name for themselves is what we see in this passage. It illustrates the problem. It shows why this was not right. But I find it very interesting. When you look at Genesis 12, when you look at just the next chapter over, when God is calling Abraham from the same area, it's the same location that Abraham was living as they were building the tower, the same general area. When God calls Abraham, listen to what God says. So in Genesis 12, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. So we have the repetition of the same phrase about making the name great. So here, they're trying to make their name great through building the tower, building the city. And in the next chapter, God is calling Abraham to make his name great. But it's not just to be great on its own. It's not just for that purpose. It's for the sake of blessing the people of the earth. It's for accomplishing the blessing that God has called him through, to become a nation. His name will be great, but it will have a larger purpose. So here's the core problem. The core problem in building the Tower of Babel is that their ambition was disconnected from God's mission. It was no longer furthering what God had called them to do, what God had set them apart for, and what they had given the mandate to do, both in Genesis 1, it's repeated in Genesis 8, it's repeated in Genesis 9, as I shared, that they were to multiply, they were to spread out, and they were to go forth. But then the second thing we see, we see what pride leads to, when the ambition is disconnected from God's mission. And and we see in this account, we see the danger of relying on human achievement instead of divine instruction. That, that if we disregard what God has said, we say, well, we can do it on our own. We can find a better way. We can do something else. We, we, this illustrates the danger of that. And God had been clear after the flood. He told them to spread out. So he was telling them to scatter. He was telling them not to stay in one place, but instead to move across the earth, to now bring civilization, to bring culture, and, and, and all of that, to bring that where, wherever they, they go. But here they were deliberately refusing that. They're saying, if we don't build this tower, we're going to be scattered. We're going to go all over, as God asks us to do. And we're trying to avoid that. So they're deliberately seeking to find another way. So they're substituting their trust in what God has called them to with their own human achievements, trying to achieve their own reputation, trying to achieve their stability, their security through this building endeavor. And that's really what led to their downfall. And for us, whenever we do the same thing, whenever we rely on our own achievement, our own accomplishments, whether it's our academic accomplishments or our job, maybe the savings we've built up, whatever else it might be, that's when we run in such great danger of of disregarding what God has called us to do, disregarding the divine instructions for what we think we're capable of doing, what we're able to do on our own. If you look at the location where this took place, it identifies it as the plain of, of Shinar. And that probably doesn't mean much to most of us, but that's a significant location in the Bible. And this is the location where Babylon would be built, the city of Babylon, which is actually related. It's, you can see the connection between Babel and Babylon. Those are linguistically connected. And so that was really the, the later iteration 
of this same rebellious tendency. And so the, the empire and the nation of Babylon is always identified in the Bible as the enemy of God. It's what led to the, the capture of Israel, the loss of the promised land, going into exile. Later on in the Bible, in Revelation, it's Babylon that is used as a code name to represent Rome, and Rome's also opposition, Rome's continued opposition to the rule and the, the value and the reign of God. It's used in that same way. So Babylon is, is a code word. I mean, it's a representation of all that is opposed to God. And this is the first time in Scripture that we see it. And so this location is significant, that, the, that this place is also tied to rebellion. But if we think about it, well, then what is this, how does this connect to what we see in technology today? I mean, how does this connect with artificial intelligence and, and other technological innovations? And so if you think of the application, as you can see up there, the, the first one, I think, is to recognize the dangers of, of some of these new technologies. Just as we see the danger in what they were doing, their ambition, what they were building, some of the negative effects that come in, we can see some of that in the new technology that is um, coming out today. Last week I mentioned a book by Yuval Noah Harari. So the name of the book is Homo Deus. So his first book was Sapiens. So Homo Sapien is the scientific designation for, for people. But his argument in the book, his argument there, is that what we're doing now as a collective, like if you look at what happens in Silicon Valley and across the world, not just in Silicon Valley, but wherever people are working towards new, new accomplishments, his argument is that ultimately the project right now that the humankind as a whole will seek to achieve over the next generation or over the next century or more is to become God. That ultimately it won't be just to become a better version of people. That that's part of it. But it's really to end the problem of death. I mean, to solve that. And there are people working on that right now. How to overcome death. How to live forever. How to become immortal. There are startups that that is their mission. That is their stated objective. That's what they're researching. What they're raising money towards. But that's only one part of it. But also to achieve perfect happiness to achieve everlasting life, to achieve all that God promises us, but through other ways. And so he's not, I mean, just to clarify the book a little bit, he's not actually advocating for this. This is just an observation. He actually thinks it's a dangerous and misguided endeavor that will not end well. But he thinks that whether we like it or not, or even whether we're a part of it or not, that that is just simply what will happen that that is the trajectory of our technology. It's the trajectory of the accomplishments that we have. And what we're hoping to do in future is to, to become immortal, to become God ourselves. But if it, to look at a few, I want to share a few specific challenges, a few, a, few, a few specific dangers we see in technology. And the first one is misinformation. Uh, the, and one of the biggest problems already emerging with using tools like ChatGPT and others, is knowing what's real and what's not. I wanted to, to bring up a, a picture. If you can move to the next slide. Have any of you seen this picture of the Pope? This is Pope Francis. Have any of you seen this? So the, the, this was making the, the, the rounds a few weeks ago. But this is, this is just simply not real, right? I mean, this, this photo never happened. And so he does not normally wear big white puffy coats like that. Right? That is not normally his dress. And you know, if you look at it, it's, it's very hard to tell. Where did this happen? You know, what, you know, it looks real, right? But this was generated by, by artificial technology, by artificial intelligence. And it's, it's just something that, that didn't happen. So you can go on right now. You can go on some of, these, some of these tools, and you can ask them, make a picture of the Pope in a white puffy coat, and it'll give you this. You can ask them to make anything. You can ask them to make a picture of Obama wearing a white puffy coat or, you know, your favorite rock star, whoever. And you can change the color, of course, and you can generate these images that, that just don't exist. And so going forward, when you see something like this, if someone forwards it to you, and BG showed me a forward recently of Elon Musk marrying his robot girlfriend. Again, that was generated by AI. It did not happen. He did not marry his robot girlfriend. It, it just never existed. It is not real. And so someone generated the pictures. I saw the pictures, and it's hard to tell us by looking at them. Sometimes they do look obviously wrong, but not always. And, and that's a technical issue that can be solved. They're likely to just look better and better. So moving forward, when someone shows you a picture or shows you a video, it's like, oh, can you believe Senator so-and-so said this? 
I don't know. <laughs> Can I believe it? I don't know. Maybe they did, or, or maybe they didn't. Maybe someone just made it up. And if you become prominent enough, then someone could make, take a picture of you or a video of you and then write, make a program that generates you saying whatever they want you to say. You know, whatever offensive or derogatory or, or wrong thing, if they want you fired or if they want you demoted or whatever else, that this is a tool now that people can use to generate their own reality. And so it's going to be harder and harder to, to know what's real and what's not. And a few weeks ago, I was using ChatGPT to, to work on, to get some ideas for a product I was working on for church revitalization, you know, how, how to turn churches around. And it, 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 wrote, it gave me some stuff. And it told me the story of Heartwood Church in San Diego and what Heartwood Church did to turn themselves around, some of the changes they made and so on. And I read it, and it was a fairly compelling story. And I was like, wow, I mean, this sounds encouraging, and you know, this seems meaningful. So I thought, okay, well, let me make sure this is true, right? So I tried to look it up. There is no Heartwood Church in San Diego. It doesn't exist. From, from what I can tell, and, and you know, my, my research is not fully comprehensive, but from what I could tell, as far as, I, as far as it went, it never has existed. And they just made all of it up. And it, it just it fabricated the story, it made up the location, it made up the church, and it just does not exist. There is a Heartwood Church that's north of San Francisco. There's one in a very different area, but there is nothing, as far as I could tell, anywhere near San Diego. And so as, as, as AI becomes more prevalent, I mean, this is only going to become more of an issue where you won't know what's real and what's not. What was generated by a computer and what was actually taken by a person that represents something that happened in real life. One other potential danger of AI can be seen in the story of Tay, T-A-Y. So there's a chatbot that was released in 2016, one of, the, one of the earlier versions of what people are using now. And it was programmed to interact with Twitter users, which, you know, we could probably have guessed that's not a good idea. But it was programmed to interact with Twitter users, to come up with content. And within 24 hours, it was just saying all these racist and sexist and very offensive content. You ask it something like, oh... Um, you know, what do you think of the Holocaust? Oh, it never happened. I mean, all these things that it learned from the internet and from Twitter, but led to it just being shut down and Microsoft was running. They just shut it down because it went completely off the rails and it wasn't at all what they were hoping it would do. And so if we don't have the ethical guidelines, the framework in place, AI can lead us, obviously, in a very dark direction. It It can lead us in ways that we don't want to go. Another issue, if we look at the second one, is human disruption. I mean, what does this mean for human jobs? This is what a lot of people are, are talking about. So right now, the Writers Guild of America is on strike in, in Hollywood and elsewhere. And one of the things that they're asking for is that studios and people who make movies and decide how they're written and so on, that they would not use artificial intelligence to replace people, but that humans would be allowed to use it as a tool. And so that's one of the things that they're asking for in their contract negotiations is we don't want you to just start generating TV pilots and TV scripts and movie scripts or commercial scripts or all these things that they write now that you just decide, oh, it's a lot cheaper if I just pay $20 a month to use the premium version of ChatGPT and I can use it to generate all the scripts that I want. But they want people to have a role in that process. And that is what they're, that's what they're discussing. And if you look at that, I mean, even if they agree now... What do you think it'll look like 20 years from now? What do you think it'll look like 30 years from now? And maybe all the established studios will agree, yes, we'll pay human rights. Well, what if an upstart studio decides, well, it's a lot cheaper. I'm going to start making movies for a quarter of the cost using this new technology. And then they disrupt the established people. I mean, it's clearly going to have an impact on, on how we work, who works, what people get paid, and so on. And a lot of people are warning of, of the, the danger of having the separation between a very small elite, I mean, not so different than what we have now, but a very large underclass of people that have really no viable economic prospects, where there's just really no way for them to make money, support themselves, and there's just a few people that generate a ton of, of content or resources, and they, they have money and connections and so on, that most people will never have access to. And that's one of the, the things people are, are looking at. So there's so many questions here, questions of copyright. If something like Bard writes a story for me, can I sell it and make money? Does it belong to me? Does it belong to Google? Who owns Bard? Who, who owns it? I mean, who, who has the rights? And these are very tricky issues. What about music? What about art? 
questions of plagiarism. So if I'm a student and I'm using this and it's prov- and it's and I use it instead of learning. So I just say, hey, write my assignment. It writes my assignment. I turn it in. I didn't read it. I didn't understand it. Then obviously that's a f- that's negatively affecting my education. It's preventing me from learning. If it becomes a tool to help my understanding, then it could perhaps be a value. But if I just use it instead of doing the work, then it's working against the goal of these of the assignment, the goal of education itself. So there's all kinds of, um, of, of issues here. And, and one more is, is just existential threats. I mean, the, the, the worst case scenarios that people are looking at is not just that I may be paid less or not just that some jobs may change, but really the elimination of humanity and the elimination of people entirely. And we see this in so many movies, in The Matrix, The Terminator. This is what happens in all of these movies. But there are a lot of people who know a lot about this that warn that this is a, a not necessarily likely, but it is a possibility. But when I, when I was reading, I, I found this quote I wanted to share with us that I thought gave a good perspective. And, and it says this. So this is, again, from Yuval Noah Harari. He writes this. He says, AI often frightens people because they don't trust the AI to, become, to remain obedient. We've seen too many science fiction movies about robots rebelling against their human masters, running amok in the streets, and slaughtering everyone. But the real problem with robots is exactly the opposite. We should fear them because they will probably always obey their masters and never rebel. He goes on to say, if the code is is restrained and benign, the robots will probably be a huge improvement over the average human soldier if they replace soldiers in war. Yet if the code is ruthless and cruel, the results will be catastrophic. The real problem with robots is not their own artificial intelligence, but rather the stupidity, the natural stupidity and cruelty of their human masters. And and I was struck by that because I think that's exactly true. I mean, we don't need to fear the robots per se, but I think we need to fear the people who make them. And we need to fear the reasons they design them, what their purpose is, I mean, who designs them, and, and, and so on. If you see the questions that are up there, so another author, Neil Postman, he proposes six questions to ask of artificial intelligence and any new technology. The first one, as you can see, what is the problem to which this technology is the solution? To understand clearly, I mean, what, what, what is the purpose? Whose problem is it? Which people and what institutions might be most seriously harmed by a technological solution? If we go to number four, What new problems might be created because we have solved this problem? What sort of people and institutions might acquire special economic and political power because of technological change? And finally, what changes in language are being enforced by new technologies and what is being gained and lost by such changes? And this is from his book, Building a Bridge to the 18th Century. So I think these are helpful ways to approach this, to really understand what is the purpose, what is the objective, what are some of the effects this is likely to have. And if you think, who will design and implement this, and what will their goals be? Will it be North Korea? Will it be Google? Will it be someone like the Red Cross, the church? And all of those clearly have very different interests and very different objectives that they would use the same technology to achieve. So the way it's designed, the way it is used, makes all the difference. And as Christians, we're, we're called to be wise stewards of the tools, the resources, the capacities that we have. And to speak into where we see an abuse of these things, where we see a danger in this. And many have called for the government to take a more active role in regulating AI. I think that that makes sense. I would support that. And the idea that it should be tested, it should be approved before release. The same way we have with medicine. Restrictions on how it's used, restrictions on when it is used. And clear testing before to see what are some of the positive, some of the negative effects. So the theologian N.T. Wright said this, if you can put that up. We must not let our tools become our masters. We must use them to enhance and extend our humanness, not to replace it. There's only one problem with that quote, is that I got this from ChatGBT. I tried to verify that quote. It doesn't exist. So N.T. Wright never said it. So if you move to the next slide, this is ChatGPT. Now, I put it to you. Do you still believe it, whether it comes from N.T. Wright or whether it comes from... It's the same words. Now, I I think the reason I included it here, I think it's true. I I do happen to agree with it. We must not let our tools become our masters. We must use them to enhance and extend our humanness, not to replace it. 
But the fact that it comes from ChatGBT instead of a thinker who I respect and admire like N.T. Wright, who I know is speaking from a lifetime of theological reflection and training and experience and, and ministry and so on, it, it does change a little bit how you perceive that, doesn't it? And, and so it just, it just adds to that confusion of, of how, how do we know what is real? How do we know what, what we're getting? But if we move to our second application point, I mean, the first one is to recognize the dangers. And I think most of us would recognize that these dangers are there. But the second one, on a more personal level, is also to embrace humility and obedience as we submit to God's sovereignty. And looking back to the Tower of Babel, looking back to the lesson of that, the dangers of what the people were setting out to do apart from God in defiance of God's desire for them, of of the mandate they had been given we recognize the, the danger of pride in our life, but the importance of cultivating humility, the importance of recognizing that I may not always understand all that God wants me to do. I may not understand the meaning and, and all the implications, but that if I humble myself, if I follow God, I believe and I've experienced that God will make it clear, that God will make a way, that God will lead me, God will lead us forward. But that we have to keep God's parameters in place. We have to recognize what is most important. And that's what Genesis 11 reminds us of. It's God's sovereignty in human affairs, God's work in us, God's control, that we must surrender our plans to what God has laid out. And that that's what will, if we align what we're doing to what God has, the purposes that we know, that's what leads to joy, that's what leads to peace, that's what leads to fulfillment. And when the tower was being built, God came down. I like how it emphasized that he came down to to intervene. So their goal was was to build, get up to heaven. But he had to go a long ways down before he reached them, is what the text is saying. So they weren't able to accomplish what they were hoping to do. They were still a long ways from reaching God. So he confused their language. He scattered them across the, the world. And so he was redirecting them back to what he had called them to do originally. And, and that's what we see in number three here. That It also reminds us the importance of focusing ourselves back to God's mission. Because the problem, as I said, their ambition was disconnected from God's mission. They weren't channeling their abilities, their resources, their talents in the way that God had asked them to do. And that's why God disrupted them, so that they would be scattered, so they would facilitate the, um, the growth of, of humankind across the earth, cultural diversity, I mean, a lot of the consequences that we have of this, and preventing the concentration of power in one single place that he was seeking to avoid at that time. So this was now aligning with his desire to reach all the nations, I mean, to become the people of the world, to reach them for good. And then God calls Abraham in the next chapter, as I shared earlier, to begin the story of Israel, to further this redemptive process. So when God redirects us, when God cancels our plans, redirects our projects, so often it's for this purpose, to redirect ourselves back on God's mission. And the questions that we have is, what has God called us to do? What has God called us here? Why has God placed us here? Wherever we live, in our, in our job, in our neighborhood, what does God desire to do through us and in us? And what is our role in God's mission? How can we make disciples that make disciples? How can we share the hope that we have? How can we follow Jesus? And how can we invite others to follow us in that journey? And that's the reminder. And the question is, does technology, the other tools, does it help or does it hinder in this mission? Does it help or does it hinder in what we're trying to do. And we have to be so careful not to overstep our bounds, not to set ourselves up to be God, but to use what God has given us for what God has called us to. So I hope we can, we can learn from some of these mistakes. We can seek to reorient our lives in the way that God has called us to. David Box, Senior Pastor of Pathway Community Church of Fremont. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.